Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. What Ford argued was, when that escort was manufactured, it had a vested right in the statute of repose that was in place when it was manufactured. Please rise. Court is now in session. All right. Well, welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. This is Steve Lowry with Yvonne Godfrey. Yvonne, how are you doing today? Steve, I have to tell you, this is unrelated to the podcast, but I always talk about Ikea on the podcast Mm -hmm. and I take back everything nice I've ever said because (laughs) as you know, I'm moving tomorrow. Right. Oh, I thought you already moved, but then I noticed that the background is the same. Yeah. Um, I'm moving tomorrow. And the reason I think I liked Ikea furniture is because I had only put it together and never tried to take it apart. And (laughs) now that I'm trying to take it apart, I hate it. (laughs) (laughs) So just to just so all our listeners know, because I talk about Ikea a lot and I kept waiting for those ad dollars to come in from Ikea. (laughs) Never mind. We're not going to be getting our Ikea sponsorship anymore. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. All right. All right. I don't want it. Well, um, well, let me uh, welcome our two guests today, two fantastic trial lawyers. We have uh, Kent Emerson and, and Hoyt Tessner. Um, Kent and Hoyt, how are you guys doing today? Doing great. Doing, Thanks. Doing great, Steve. Yvonne, thank you. Let, let me uh, let me give a little bit of background so everybody who's listening on the podcast can know who you are. Kent, we'll start with you. Uh, Kent is a, 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 well, a fantastic trial lawyer. Uh, he's a partner in the firm of Langdon and Emerson, uh, which has offices in Kansas City, Missouri, St. Louis, Missouri, um, uh, a couple of others, and even a, an office in Chicago, if I if I saw that right. And, um, and Kent has been trying uh, cases for a long time, had a lot of success, especially in the product liability field. And, uh, and Kent has been named as a fellow in the International Academy of Trial Lawyers, been named uh, uh, Lawyer of the Year by Best Lawyers in America for Personal Injury in Kansas City, and was in 2017 was given the Thomas G. Strong Trial Attorney Award from the Missouri Association of Trial Attorneys. Uh, and then was Lawyer of the Year or part of the Lawyer of the Year program by the Missouri Lawyers Weekly uh, and been named for the past three years one of the top 100 lawyers in the Missouri and Kansas area uh, by Super Lawyers and is a past president of uh, the Missouri Association of Trial Attorneys. Um, Kent, welcome to the show. Hi, Steve. And um, and the case that we're going to talk about, you tried with Hoyt Tessner. Hoyt is a uh, fantastic trial lawyer based out of uh, North Carolina. Uh, Hoyt is with the law firm of uh, the law office of James Scott Farron, and uh, they have offices in Durham, Charlotte, Asheville, uh, North Carolina, among others. Uh, and I should have said this at the beginning. If you want to uh, look up Kent, uh, you can go to langdonemison.com. That's L-A-N-G-D-O-N-E-M-I-S-O-N.com. And if you want to look up Hoyt, you can look him up at farron.com. That's F-A-R-R-I-N.com. And, uh, and Hoyt has been, a, uh, been named a super lawyer uh, every year since 2006, been named uh, for uh, Best Lawyers for Personal Injury Litigation from 2008 through 2020, uh, was named Lawyer of the Year in Product Liability uh, by Best Lawyers in America, and uh, has been part of the legal elite uh, in 2018 from the, uh, um, I think it's called Business North Carolina, is an AV-rated lawyer and also an adjunct professor at uh, Campbell University. So Hoyt, uh, uh, welcome to the show. 
Thank you, Steve. It's an honor to be here. Uh, and and I know that this is gonna uh, this is going to air in a few weeks, so it's not uh, uh, totally relevant. But uh, but Hoyt was just in a uh, an earthquake yesterday. Is that right, Hoyt? <laughs> we did in North Carolina. We have earthquakes now in the in the west and hurricanes right. in the east. So my 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 uh, brother in law and his wife live out in Los Angeles, and when we told them there was a what was it a five point two or five point yeah. six, they they scoffed at it. They're like, "That's that's nothing. That, that, that you don't even get out of bed for that." <laughs> yeah, I understand. I heard that from some other people too. Right. right. <laughs> Um, all right. Well, um, well, guys, we uh, we really appreciate you coming on the show. And uh, and the case we're going to talk about was a case that you two tried uh, in um, in Nash County, North Carolina, which I understand is outside of Raleigh, Durham, to the east. Uh, and you tried it back in March of 2015. The name of the case was Amos Tendall as guardian ad litem for Cheval. Bats uh, versus Ford Motor Company and uh, Alejandro Ortiz Rios. Uh, and uh, we've had a couple of uh, shows um, uh, in, in the podcast about cases involving Ford Motor Company and, and Yvonne. I think we know that cases against Ford Motor Company are super easy and they're just great to work with. Just, just easy, no fighting, just only really discussing the stuff that matters in That's a right. professional, calm way. Absolutely, absolutely. No, nothing like burn bridges or anything like that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Well, um, well, well, guys. Let, let's. Um, I'm going to give a brief overview of the facts of the case, and and um, and you tell me uh, where I've screwed it up. Um, but um, and then and then I want to start at the end, and we'll we'll talk about that in a second. But um, Cheval Bats uh, was 11 years old, and he was uh, the rear seat passenger, rear center seat passenger in a 1999 Ford Escort that his mother was driving. Um, I think if I heard right, um, that, that the other two people sitting in the rear seat on either side of, of Cheval were not wearing their seatbelt, or at least there was a claim that they might not have been wearing their seatbelt. But uh, Cheval was wearing the seatbelt that was provided, which was a two-point lap belt only seatbelt, meaning there was no shoulder portion to it. Um, not a three-point belt as was in all the other seating positions. And as I learned from reading, uh, Ford had had in a number of their other vehicles in the center seat position, a three-point seat belt, uh, but had decided in the 1999 Escort that they weren't going to put that in. So he's 11, riding in a, uh, a two-point seat belt that just goes across the hips um, and uh, is involved in a essentially a frontal collision and didn't, when you look at the, the uh, photographs of the vehicle, didn't look like the worst uh, frontal collision. I think the, um, the change in velocity, if I saw, was somewhere between 15 miles per hour and 22 miles per hour, depending on whether or not they listened to uh, Kenton Hoyt's expert or listened to Ford's expert. Uh, and, um, and basically, everybody else in the vehicle uh, had minor injuries or relatively minor injuries. I think the worst I heard was a, a broken leg. But because um, Cheval was wearing a two-point lap belt, uh, he uh, jackknifed over the seat belt, uh, which uh, lacerated uh, his intestines, uh, his, lar his, his colon, and um, uh, caused a catastrophic um, spinal cord injury. Um, and he was a paraplegic. Uh, from that. And, um, and so 
the evidence, and we'll talk a lot about the evidence that you had in this case, but the evidence, the way you started it out, I, I saw was that you go back to 1967, where uh, one of Ford's engineers was already recommending that they put three-point seatbelts in all seating positions uh, and was, was essentially saying that two-point seatbelts, uh, you know, um, can cause the worst types of injuries, head injuries, uh, abdominal injuries, and spinal cord injuries. Uh, but Ford uh, decided not to do that all the way from 67 all the way up through 1999 uh, and, um, and uh, put Cheval in this, um, in this position where he uh, got this catastrophic injury. Um, so the case was tried, that, that happened in, in 2010. So the vehicle was about 11 years old at the time of the collision. Uh, and we're going to talk about some of the issues that come up with that in a second. Uh, but the case was tried in February and March of 2015. And, um, and uh, Kent and Hoyt, you can correct me if I'm wrong. My understanding is, is that during the trial, you, were, you entered into a high-low agreement. Um, and essentially, the, the, ver the jury came back hung. Um, and the case was resolved uh, for a confidential amount. Um, uh, at, pursuant to the high-low agreement. But what I, what I want to do is talk about, um, the, or the place I want to start before we really get into the meat of the case, is how the case ended. Because my understanding is, is that at one point, uh, you all thought you had a defense verdict, and then it, that changed. So, um, so why don't you talk us through what happened at the, at the end of the case? I'd like Hoyt to do that because Hoyt has a better memory. He was there during the entire jury deliberation. So Hoyt, take it away. Uh, it, it was it was quite a roller coaster, Steve. Uh, after the um, after the closing arguments that lasted probably two days altogether, uh, Ford issued a press release explaining how they uh, lost the case. <laughs> and, uh, and so, so we come in the, the next day for the jury to begin deliberations and, and counsel said, oh, we, uh, you know, we've got this press release out. And uh, but it didn't get to Nash County, got, got I guess, got pulled at some place. So so that's how they felt about the case, apparently. Then the jury started deliberating and uh, it went on for a couple of days and it was very vocal. You could hear yelling and particularly one voice uh, yelling in the back. You couldn't make out what they were saying, but this is an older courthouse. It's in Nashville, North Carolina. Outside, there's a sign that says the original Nashville in Nash County. And um, it's so, you know, we're hearing that. It comes in. So it's Friday evening and it's about 430. Judge calls the uh, jury in, ask them if they're near near a a verdict, and they say they think they are. Well, we're going to stay then, he said. Next thing we know, it's about seven o'clock. He brings them back out, and they say, we think we're near we're near a verdict. And they go back in for about an hour. We get a note. That they want something to eat. So the judge gives about a 45-minute recess, I think, when it can. It was a very short period of time. But, but we... Uh, you just ran out to the fast food places, came in. The jury kept deliberating, came in at about 12.30 a.m. on Saturday. So we'd gone into the next day. And it was um, a defense verdict. 
And in North Carolina, we have to have 12 unanimous jurors, but we have the right to poll the jurors. And so we decided to poll the jurors. And in polling the jurors, the trial judge, uh, is, he was a very good judge. This was his really first significant civil case. He had a history of, he was a prosecutor and then was appointed to the bench, a really good guy, good judge. So this was his first episode in polling a jury. You have to read three pages, single space, to every single juror. And, and you, you really can't make this up. It's like a movie. It started and it went all the way from one to juror number 12. You got to juror number 12. And she looked around, paused, and said, that's not my verdict. And, and everyone looked around. And you could sense that that, or I felt like we could sense that there were other jurors that felt that way but just felt the peer pressure, and she didn't. And then she said what she thought about it. She went and started going on. The judge stopped her and asked the jury to leave, brought us back, and said, do you want to come back in the morning or come back on Monday? Well, now it's 2.15, Saturday morning. So we go back uh, Monday morning, and juries start deliberating again. Ultimately, what happened, we got to lunchtime. The jurors said they wanted to bring in lunch. They brought him lunch. The judge started asking the jury every time he brought him in. And at lunchtime, it started out, it was clearly it was 11 to 1 earlier uh, Saturday morning. Then it was 4 to 8. Then it was 5 to 7. And then, then it was, I think it was 10 to 2. And, um, and that's when we really started uh, in, in our favor. Because we knew it was 11-1 against us. Right. And, started and then at that point, we really started getting um, um, tele uh, telephone calls. Uh, uh, and, and then uh, it ended up um, resolving while they were still out. And the juror who went to 11, who was our juror that spoke up, told us after the fact that at that point it was 11-1 in our favor. Wow. Wow. And, and, and uh, I should have mentioned, so you, uh, Mr. Rios, who was the, uh, the, uh, he was driving, I think, a Jeep Cherokee. He pulled out in front of, um, of the vehicle that Cheval was in. Uh, he took responsibility and basically um, there, was all, there was going to be a verdict against him. It was just a question of whether or not there was a verdict against Ford. Is that right? Yes, that's right. The, really, the interesting thing about right. Mr. Rios is he was he was the driver. He did pull out in front. He was charged, but he did not appear for his traffic charges, could not be found. None of us could find him. He was not deposed. His case was called and failed, and there was a arrest warrant issued for him, and he showed up as a witness, and Ford called him at trial. None of us had ever spoken to him or seen him, not even his lawyer, who was representing him, had never met him. And But Ford found him, put him on the stand, cross-examined him because he's an adverse witness. And he, it, and of course, in the cross-examination, it was all, it's your fault, it's your fault, you did it all, you paralyzed this boy. And he just broke down crying saying, yes, 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 it's all my fault, it's all my fault. Wow. That is wild. First, I want to take a step back because in the trials that I have been a part of after you 
first of all, deliberations are torture. We've talked about that many times, but I can't imagine this scenario, how torturous it was. But then when they come back and you finally hear what their verdict is, that's like the, you know, hopefully you're happy, but that's the first time you can kind of breathe the sigh of relief. And in every case that I've been in, the they've asked to poll the jury. And I, it never really occurred to me that somebody would say that's not my verdict. I really kind of thought of that as just sort of routine. That is insane. Right. And this is a Friday night, Saturday morning, actually, where Hoyt and I had had virtually no sleep for most of the week. You know how that goes mm-hmm. at, at towards the end. And this was at the end of a six-week trial. So... Oh, man. I, I mean, I, I'm just trying to imagine what the, that weekend must have been like for you guys, uh, you know, going home 11 to 1. Uh, I mean, were, were you all expecting that when you show up on Monday morning, it was going to be a defense verdict? Or is that what you were telling your client? Well, honestly, I don't think we knew. Uh, everybody, including Ford, thought we were going to win the case. Um, and we know that from four because of the press release. And we certainly thought we were in a good position. So we were devastated Friday, Friday night, Saturday morning. But I don't think any of us gave up any hope. Uh, it's just that we had we had one juror that was just a holdout and was never going to vote for us. So right. that's, that's the way it goes sometimes. Well, and I mean, but, uh, you know, this juror who, um, you know, basically uh, kept you all from getting a defense verdict. And then uh, apparently she was pretty effective in the jury room because she turned uh, at least 10 others, it sounds like. Yeah. Yeah, it appears that was the case. And there was one juror that, and, and she told us uh, afterwards, there was no chance that we were ever going to turn him, that he had he had dug his heels in, that the federal safety standard was complied with, this car was not recalled in 1999, and that was it. That was the yeah. end of the case as far as he was concerned. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that's one thing I definitely wanted to talk to you all about because, you know, that in, in any products liability case, I mean, that's the first thing that the defense always says is, you know, we, we met and complied with or met and exceeded uh, every federal uh, safety regulation out there, you know, which, of course, they, nobody tells them that that's the absolute bare minimum that they have to do to sell a vehicle legally in the United States. Um, but, um, well, uh, and, and I guess I'm, I'm trying, trying to figure out this press release. So you, had you all seen the press release before the jury came back? Oh yeah. We, my office sent it to us Friday night while the jury was deliberating. Uh, yeah, it, we have it. It was, it was, uh, about, about 7 PM Eastern time Friday evening, um, that we, we got the press release. And would you got it? Did you go over to Ford and say, you all know something we don't? Or uh, We took it to the judge and called Ford counsel up. They hadn't seen it. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> so did you ever find out, like, what happened Who and who was fired? <laughs> right. Never found out. Never found out. Wow. Oh, man. Well, um, well, I mean, that, that must have just been harrowing that those, those last few days, especially after you just poured your heart and soul in for six weeks, uh, which is a, a long time to try a case, um, you know, and, and to go through that roller coaster, and especially for your client um, to go through a roller coaster like that. 
So I really bl- cannot imagine, like, you know, just in regular de- deliberations, like every time there's like a meal break and they want to leave for lunch or they want to work through the lunch or they want more food or whatever, you read into all of it. Do you want them to go in, come in on the Saturday? Do you not want them to come in on the Saturday? That's like, that's like the most agonized I have ever been. And that's without a press release that comes out <laughs> about right. the result right. that hasn't happened yet. And a poll jury. I just, I really... I feel bad for ever complaining about the deliberations that I had to wait for. Oh yeah. 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 In general, I hate uh, having the jury go home over the weekend during deliberations just cause you know, I kind of want them to get it over with. And I just feel like it gives them a chance to talk to their friends and neighbors and maybe change their mind about something. But, uh, but I'm glad this turned out the way it did for you guys. That's a, uh, that, that's just uh, a crazy story. So Yvonne, one thing I've learned in this business is that you can't go get a great trial verdict to be talked about on the Great Trials podcast unless you get the case in the first place. And that's why we're talking about digitallawmarketing.com. It's Digital Law Marketing. They are a great company that does website design, SEO, social media marketing, content marketing, and everything you need to market your firm online. Yeah, I mean, think about it. The first time that you hear about whether it's a lawyer or a law firm or a business or a doctor, what do people do now? You look them up. You just, you you Google them. And so your website has to look good. Your content has to be good. And that's what digital law marketing can help you with. Yeah, and they make sure that you can be found too because you can have a great looking website, but people type into Google and you don't come up at all. They will help with that as well. And the thing that I really like about digital law marketing is that they don't go out and market for your competitors. So if you get them for your area, they won't go across the street and go advertise for a competitor or law firm. They also have such a fantastic team. They, when I made partner at the firm, they sent me flowers, which was so nice and such a personal touch. Um, they do our firm's website and for better or worse, it's very easy to find me in my headshot that I hate <laughs> right. because they're so good at what they do. Exactly. And, and you know, the thing, uh, another thing I like about them is they're, they're extremely responsive. As you said, like if you ask them to do something, they will get it done that day and they don't overpromise. They won't tell you things just because they think you want to hear it, which Without mentioning names, I've heard from some other website marketing companies and digital law marketing will not do that. Yes, they're awesome. So call uh, Digital Law Marketing. You can call them at 877-916-0644 or you can look them up at digitallawmarketing.com. Again, that's digitallawmarketing.com. And tell them we sent you. Well, Kent, why don't you tell us a little bit? I mean, you, you put up a, a significant amount of evidence about what Ford knew and uh, and what they didn't do um, uh, about the the um, the two point lap belt. So, so walk us through a little bit of, of the evidence that you had, including some of these um, uh, uh, crash tests and sled tests that uh, that we saw in some of the videos in the PowerPoint that you sent us. Well, well, Steve. Uh You've, you've tried a lot of uh, and handled a lot of crash witness cases. And in every auto product liability case, jury wants to know what the manufacturer knew and when they knew it. So uh, with a lap belt, a lot of, lot of really good documents, a lot of good crash tests and things like that. To distill it all down, uh, Ford had a safety engineer in 1967 uh, tell them, 
why lap belts were bad and why three-point belts were, were better, were much safer. And this safety engineer almost described exactly the injuries that Cheval had. It was amazing in his memo. And this memo went to some of the higher management at Ford. Uh, so that was really good. And then we had three sled tests, which showed dummies ripping apart. Uh, two showed dummies ripping apart. And one was a uh, child dummy. And the child dummy was important to show because what happens to children um, is that this sled test clearly showed a child dummy jackknifing and banging its head on the center console uh, really hard. And Ford has a, uh, a corporate representative by the name of Roger Burnett. Steve, I, I've known yeah. you, you dealt <laughs> with him. Yeah. He is a good witness. Um, he all, you know, he's a professional witness, corporate representative in many Ford cases. And he came in and testified that that's exactly how a lap belt is supposed to function. That that was the expected intended result of the lap belt. So, you know, Ford didn't apologize ever or be defensive about the lap belt and the injuries and things like that. Um, so we, we, Hoyt and I uh, did two focus groups uh, before the trial. We knew we, we had to show what Ford knew, the dangers of um, the lap belt, the alternative design, and Ford started putting three-point belts in their Australian cars in 1993. So we had good evidence that they were, you know, really proud of their three-point belt in Australia. Some some good ads there. Also some ads uh, for some U.S. cars starting in 1996 and continuing. It's just that the, the Ford Escort, they were closing out um, and meaning they were stopping the Ford Escort and starting with the Ford Focus. And so they didn't want to change the design in the Ford Escort. And we had a good document showing the cost of a three-point belt was only uh, $9 to $12 uh, cost to put a three-point belt in instead of a lap belt. Um, so our, our evidence went in really well with um, our design expert, our biomechanic, uh, our accident. Really, there wasn't much dispute over the, the accident itself. Um, so, you know, the evidence went in really good. Um, in Ford's case, Ford hammered the defenses that they usually uh, put up in, in most cases. And so that was the uh, Federal Motor Vehicle Safety Standards. Um, they had very elaborate charts showing all manufacturers were putting lap belts in the rear center in 99 models, meaning all manufacturers had some vehicles with rear seat lap belts in the center. Uh, they had, you know, they showed um, really that many cars were being sold in 99 with those belts. What surprised us a little bit was uh, how much they pushed the misuse of the belt by Cheval. And they tried to argue that he had the belt too high uh, above his uh, uh, pelvis and 
that, you know, that is what caused his injury, that if the belt had only been down lower, you know, and he was an 11 year old kid, right. uh, but uh, you know, they really pushed that defense and that defense, you know, we, we had a good expert also that said it wasn't, we actually had the treating surgeon show the belt mark down low and things of that nature. One problem with a six week trial is that when the jury starts deliberating, it had been five weeks since they heard our experts. Yeah. So, um, anyway, that's, 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 uh, probably more information than you asked for, but, um, no. No, it's helpful. I, mean, I actually want to follow up on what you just said there, because, you know, we we toy with this. I mean, not toy with it. I mean, we we do it, uh, especially when there's a long trial. Um, we usually try to figure out uh, something that we can bring a rebuttal witness back on just so that we can have the last uh, witness that the jury hears sort of, you know, get our get what we're you know, our side of the case back in, in front of the jury. Did you all have a rebuttal witness or anything like that, that you could put up? No, we didn't. And the trial had gone so long. It was supposed to be a three week trial. Yeah. We were delayed by weather, uh, at least a week. We were delayed by several, uh, a juror fainted, uh, the first day of trial. So we had to quit early. Uh, a juror was removed because he did a, a, a male did something inappropriate coming into the courthouse to a female juror, Hoyt. I don't know. Oh, my God. <laughs> and and so this, this case was I argued. I believe I'd forgotten about that. Yeah. <laughs> this case was argued Friday afternoon. And I, I will tell you, everybody was ready for this case to go to the jury. Yeah. And in hindsight, absolutely. I would have carried it over to the next week. And I would have had a rebuttal expert. Absolutely. Uh, 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 but that's that's hindsight. Uh, but it's something, uh, Steve, I think, you know, in every case that either is a hung hung jury or you don't win, you're thinking about it. You think about it a lot more than the cases. Oh, yeah. And uh, so I've thought about this case a lot. <laughs> <laughs> right. You have to. And uh, that's one thing that uh, a rebuttal witness in a long trial is something that that you should think about doing. It's hard though. You're so tired oh, at yeah. the end. You're so fatigued that you're just like, I don't know. No, you yeah. both, I mean, you both have been through this plenty of times and you know, especially when you get back and talk to these jurors and find out that there's one that I don't, it doesn't seem like that we could have done anything that was going yep. to change his mind. Yeah. When, you, when you look back at it. But one thing I wanted to add about what Kent was talking about with the, uh, the, the little bit of a, of a surprise with the location of the belt, because we, we had a great trauma surgeon who testified, and, and we had a photograph. There was just the exact width of the belt imprint on this boy. I mean, and so she so had that photograph, and one of the things Kent did, Kent did in the case, right after we got the answer, we went out just a blitzkrieg deposing everybody that uh, that saw this child. And I mean, some of these depositions, it, I think it really threw them off guard because they're witnesses really for us, but we deposed them, and some of these depositions were 15, 20, 30 minutes of 
the seatbelt was on. This is where it was. And, and so it was seemed so clear. And then one of their experts came in and said, oh, that wasn't from the seatbelt. That was just hyperpigmentation from the surgery. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. I mean, we, you know, we know that in, in these in seatbelt cases, especially, I mean, if you find marks on the on the body or, you know, in the clothing, I mean, those, those marks become so important because, it, uh, you know, how the belt was being worn always becomes an issue. Um, but when I heard the way you described it in your uh, opening and closing, Kent, I mean, it, it sounded like what the Ford's expert was saying was that, you know, it, it it wasn't like hyper technical on exactly where he's wearing it. And I'm, and I'm sitting there thinking, you know, th- we're talking about an 11 year old boy putting on the seatbelt. I mean, the fact that he's got it across his, you know, his hips in the first place, I mean, is, uh, is more than you would expect. Yeah. It, it's one of those. And, and Hoyt's right. The, the one witness that uh, was against us at the end, we were never going to get that guy. So you never know what makes a difference, but um, you never want to underestimate any crazy defense. You know, you want to fight it and kill it with, you know, any kind of evidence you can. Yeah. yeah. Well, one of, one of the effective things, I think, I can't remember if it was your opening or closing, Kent, that you said was about how, you know, Cheval doesn't have a choice you know, Ford has these these choices that they've made about that lap belt and the escort, whereas Cheval doesn't have a choice. He sits in that seat and that's the belt that he has to put on. Um, and, you know, and just taking a step back, like we know what the defenses are going to be as as lawyers in a products case, but as just a person who has ridden in the back seat of a lot of cars and put on a lap belt, I don't think anybody really ever informed me in my life about where I was supposed to wear that lap belt. You know, I just put it on. I buckled it and put it on. Oh, yeah. Well, I will tell you, um, from the the lessons learned from Cheval's case, um, I just finished up a Ford case in New York, Syracuse, New York. Almost identical, 97 Escort. And uh, so I I had a warnings expert, even though, you know, I didn't think it was a true warnings case. But just because of that defense, um, you know, I got a warnings expert and, um, that case resolved prior, just, just before trial, like two weeks before trial. Uh, but be, because of, of that misuse defense, you know, I, I got one more expert and I, and I think that real that would have helped. I know it helped get the case resolved. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I want to go back to the sled test for a second because it's, uh, I want to make sure our listeners understand, you know, what exactly happened. You know, I mean, you, you, two of the sled tests, you clearly see the, the dummies that Ford is running. I mean, they get ripped in half and the torsos go into the front. And then what I actually thought was sort of the most, uh, I don't know, shocking or just jarring to me was that one of the tests they had run showed a showed a passenger sitting in the middle rear seat and all you could see was that its legs were still sitting there but that the torso was up by the steering wheel um and and was gone i i, I can't uh, i mean i i, I know you you said that uh, that that roger burnett said that's how it's supposed to work i can't imagine uh, a manufacturer showing dummies being ripped in half and said yep that's that's what it does it's that's how it's supposed to work 
Well, the, the, the sled test that he said was indicative of how it was supposed to work was the one with the child dummy. Okay. Didn't, didn't rip it half, but did jackknife and smash its head. Right. And, and I, I have to tell you, Ford with a straight face got up there and said, yep, these are lap belts. They're important. Uh, they save lives. And, uh, you know, they come up with excuses. Well, the dummy was, you know, not... Uh, like a human and, and that happens and things like that. But one, one thing, and uh, Hoyt was really good uh, about helping with all the pretrial. And so, you know, it's always a battle. I think we had 40 some pretrial motions, uh, but we were able to overcome all the objections about uh, these sled tests because, um, because they weren't sled tests for an escort. They were sled tests for other, other vehicles. And um, uh, we had a really good judge that ruled we could get all that evidence in. So, yeah, w- one thing I, um, I we I don't think we've mentioned, but uh, so in Georgia we have a what what's called the statute of repose. We have a ten year statute of repose that after the vehicle sold is new, um, it limits some of the claims. You can't bring a strict liability claim anymore. You still can bring a failure to warn claim, and then you have a heightened standard on some other things. Um, I understand there was a statute of repose in North Carolina and that that became a big issue before trial. It, it, it really did and really kind of remained an issue. Uh, at the time that this Ford Escort was sold, originally sold, North Carolina had a six-year statute of repose. So if the six-year statute of repose had been in existence, and it's a hard statute of repose, it bars all claims then there wouldn't have been a claim. But in 1999, uh, no, in 2009, North Carolina extended their statute of repose to 12 years for all causes of action after, um, I, I think it was May, I think it was October 1st, 2009. Well, then this happened um, in August of 2010. So it seemed very simple, 12 year statute of repose. The action wasn't filed. When the, when the clients came to me, uh, there was only, it came in and it was just a car wreck case. And I looked at it and said, you know, we've got a paralyzed child. Tell me what happened. And when they did, at, when did you buy the car? How old was it? It was 2009. So I knew potentially within a couple of months, the statute of repose could run. So I, I contacted Kent. He's as good as anybody in the country at handling these cases. And it and literally we had weeks to get the complaint filed or we were going to miss the statute of repose. And uh and fortunately Kent jumped in on it and his and his people. And so so we got the case filed. They immediately filed a motion to dismiss and said, no, the statute of repose is six years because the car was manufactured. When it was sold originally, it was within the six-year statute of repose. The trial judge denied the motion to dismiss and went to the Court of Appeals. They affirmed it, 3-0, unanimous opinion, and they petitioned for cert to the North Carolina Supreme Court, which I'm sure just like it is in Georgia and everywhere else, the chances of getting cert, they're minuscule. Well, the Supreme Court granted cert. And that, that felt really bad. And... And then we argued it to the Supreme Court, 
it ended up a 3-3 opinion because one of the judges on the Court of Appeals had since been elevated to the Supreme Court. She is now our Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, <laughs> but she recused herself, so it ended 3-3. So the substantive issue was never addressed. And so we had that hanging over our head of whether if we got a verdict, it was going to be appealed and it could potentially say, no, the statute of repose didn't mean that. So, wow. so we had that throughout. Wow. And, and as you said, the statute of repose in North Carolina, though, takes away all claims. There, all there right. is no case. Right. Wait, so what happens? It's 3-3 on that cert petition. And so what? What happened? They're just like, they just like send you back a shrug and you just yeah, keep yeah. going? <laughs> Pretty much, Ron. It, it's, okay, whatever the Court of Appeals said, which the Court of Appeals just dismissed the appeal. I mean, it was just, it is, it's sort of ridiculous. And, but we knew there were three justices on the Supreme Court that right. wanted third. And so, so now we're sitting there politically, how's the elections going to come in the meantime? Uh, going forward. Gosh, and how frustrating for your, we all deal with this when you have, when you have clients. I mean, it's not, you know, part of it is sure you want, maybe you want these legal issues addressed, especially if you think they're going to go in a way that's good for your clients. But in the meantime, your clients are just waiting. And the idea that they would have waited that long for that process for cert only to not even really get an answer has to be really, I don't even know how I would explain that to a client. (laughs) And Steve, I don't know if you understand Ford's argument, but what Ford argued was when that escort was manufactured, it had a vested right in the statute of repose that was in place <laughs> when it was manufactured. Right. So, so they're sitting there thinking, if we can just make it six years, we're safe. That was the argument that 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 escort had a right to that six statute of repose. <laughs> yeah, the the three three thing is also pretty surprising. Yes. And, and and interesting, in North Carolina, we don't build any Ford parts. I don't know how they had a vested interest in the North Carolina statute of repose. All right, Yvonne, this next company that we're talking about is literally a company that has been with our firm since the beginning. And I don't think we could survive with because every time we go to trial, we always have Bob or Liz or one of the other technicians who is helping us do our trial presentations. And I'm talking, of course, about legal technology services. And you can find them at ltsatlanta.com. Yes, they do all things visual. That's their big tagline. And it's definitely true. They have saved our bacon so many times and can help you out with so many more things uh, that you might even, you know, not even think about. I mean, they can help you with demonstratives for trial. They can help you with video depositions, stay in the life videos, stuff for your website. Settlement videos, witness statements. I mean, literally it is anything technology based or as Yvonne already said, all things visual. They are huge at helping with demonstratives that we put in front of the jury. They are friends of the firm and have just done tremendous work for us over the years. So pick up the phone or get on the computer and look up Bob, Melanie, or Liz at ltsatlanta.com. And you can also call them at 770-554-1633. That's Legal Technology Services at ltsatlanta.com. 
And Steve, don't forget, we have a gift for our listeners. Oh yeah, I totally told you to remind me and I totally screwed it up. So yeah, so what I forgot to tell our listeners is that um, if you mention the Great Childs podcast, when you call into legal technology services or write into them, uh, they will give you 10% off of your first job. So mention the podcast, Great Trials podcast, and uh, they will give you 10% off of your first job. And again, that is LTSAtlanta.com. Legal technology services, uh, give them a try. Kent, going back to to some of the the liability questions, uh, one thing I thought I remembered, and I and I thought I saw you reference it. Didn't the uh, uh, NTSB at one point come out and say that you'd be safer wearing no seatbelt than to wear a two point uh, lap belt? And did yeah, did, did uh, that get in? I knew, I heard I saw you reference the NTSB that that Ford had adopted their position at some point. Um, uh, yeah, I just can't imagine that wouldn't have a, a big effect with the jury as well. Yeah, the the NTSB report is from 1986, and it, it's a really good and thorough report on the dangers of lap belts. And so the short answer is yes, it's an important it's important evidence in this, but it's one of those things that in a six six week and I emphasize it in closing argument, okay, but in a six week trial what you find is that some of that really good evidence yeah. that's forgotten. And so you do what you can do in closing argument, which, you know, we showed them exactly what the NT- NTSB said. Um, uh, but it's one of those things that uh, for some jurors, it just won't matter. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, you, when you've got a juror who's just set in, I mean, it sounded like that juror uh, didn't come in with an open mind, which is, which is uh, too bad. Um, but um, I wanted to go through some of the defenses that I read that Ford was basically pushing. Um, one of their arguments, and, and I'm, I'm trying to imagine how they make this argument, considering the fact that by the time they're, they're manufacturing the 99 Escort, they're also manufacturing I think it was the Taurus, the, the Mercury Sable, the Lincoln Continental, um, several other vehicles, all with three-point belts in the in the rear center seat. But th- did they make the argument that three-point belts put children at a higher risk than two-point belts? Oh yeah, and 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 they they argue that uh, because the shoulder belt on some children will come across the neck, that that uh, children can be paralyzed uh, in the cervical area, meaning a, a quadriplegic right. uh, as opposed to a paraplegic. So they, they did make that argument. Um, and, I, you know, I, they threw a lot of defenses up on the wall and hoping some would stick. And obviously some did stick. Um, don't have any idea how much, uh, mer- you know, how much uh, weight the juror put in that defense, but that's an argument. But they make it. I will tell you, they're still making it. I know from the the case in New York that I recently resolved, they used all these same same defenses. Um, so, well, I, I guess it makes me wonder how they're making that argument, considering the fact that pretty much all their vehicles now have three point in the center seat, right? Yeah, and and you know we we had uh, I remember the Ford Contour had an ad, so you know we we go look at ads and they tout the safety of the three-point belt, and they showed children in the rear center. And so we had a photo of a small girl uh, in the center of a 
1999 Ford Contour. And uh, so you can find good evidence out there uh, to rebut most of these things, but they'll make that argument. Um, well, and then some of the other, um, I, I think, were they also trying to make the argument that you had to use a lap belt for uh, child seats, that you, that you couldn't use a three-point belt for child seats? Yeah, because that predated the latch system, the latch right. system people are familiar with now. And, and the thing of it is that in their own documentation, you know, they, they said that you, the three-point belt would work with child seats. So, you know, we had in, in the advantage, they, they had a document that was in uh, January 1999, uh, which went through all the advantages of a three-point belt. And in their own documentation, that document, they said it would work with child seats. So, right. you know, they, they'll come in and even make an argument that is, is uh, contradicted by their by their own safety engineers. Well, and, and I would think any parent who's putting in safety seats knows, you know, you, you spool the, the three point all the way out, put it in retractor mode and that's how you, and then you pull it as tight as possible. And that's how you put it in. I mean, everybody knows that that's how you put it in a three point belt. So it, it uh, you know, but I, I mean, we, we've all seen Ford makes arguments uh, that, uh, that seem to defy common sense, but sometimes they work and that's why they make them. Well, and we've talked about, a lot of times on this show that they, you know, they can make a bunch of dip, of arguments and, you know, we have to chase them all down and it only takes one to, you know, if one sticks yeah, with one juror. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing if you do enough focus groups, the focus groups will tell you the defenses you really have to worry about. Yeah. Um, and so I know from Cheval's case, I know from this case in New York, uh, you know, we we had we had had a pretty good idea in this most recent case which defenses we really really need to be careful about. So, well, you know, and, and I mean the two, uh, you know, that the, they make in every case, and it's because they're effective. I mean, the fact that they they comply with all federal safety standards, um, you know, even though we know that this these are minimum standards, uh, jurors, you know, at least some uh, will find that effective. And then the other part of it is is the fact that all manufacturers do it the same way. And um, and that can make it, uh, th those two arguments uh, have always, you know, I think we've got good reasons why you can address those, but, uh, but I always find those difficult at trial. How, how do you uh, approach those two types of defenses? Well, on the federal safety standards, you know, we always start out an opening statement saying every car sold in the U.S. since I think 1966 has passed the minimum federal standards. And uh, the Pinto, the GM side saddle pickups, you can go ahead and name a laundry list of really bad cars. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, that they're minimum standards. So the only way to handle it that I know of is, is to do that. And also most people are surprised that the manufacturers self-certify. Nobody right. goes and looks at it unless unless the government finds a reason to do that. They self-certify. So yeah. Um, yeah, that's that's that. And then um, um, oh, Steve, what was the other the other? Oh, one? They, they, all manufacturers do it the same oh, way. And, and I find that the hardest one. Where you know, say a juror juror is driving a car with a lap belt only in the center rear or, or the, the, uh, some other defect that you're alleging, 
when they know that there's many other cars out there on the roadway with the same design, uh, that's one you really have to cover with your experts and show that, you know, no one ever knows they have a defective vehicle unless they're in one of these crashes. Right. Um, so the cases you've handled, Steve and, and Hoyt and my cases, that's one that you really have to handle with your experts and, and the good experts do know how to handle that, but that's one you can never underestimate. You know, and when it comes to the failure to warn claim, I've always, I always kind of look at that from the other side that, you know, if, if all of the manufacturers do it this way, then you, you know, your, your, uh, you know, client consumer is, it was going to have no idea that this is somehow an unsafe design unless they're being told, you know, here's the dangers with it, which is what they're required to tell. So I, I always try to use it that way, but, I, but you know, I, I'll be honest, it's a, it's a difficult argument. Well, the warnings claims will help, and especially if there's a post-sale duty to warn, which a few yeah. states have, that's very, very helpful. Um, and in, in New York, there was a post-sale duty to warn, so that, that was, a, you know, a, a significant difference between the case for Chabal and the case I had in New York. Yeah, that's that's the law in Georgia, and that's that's certainly something that um, that we use a lot and are and are happy about when it comes to failure to warn claims. Um, well, uh, I noticed that you uh, the way you uh, approach the case is that you broke up the liability and the damages, uh, like your opening statements and closings between the two of you. What what made you decide to do it that way instead of uh, you know having one of you handle all the opening or all the closing or something like that? Oh, yeah, you would take that, Kent. Well, I mean, there's a couple of reasons, but one, uh, Kent's vast experience in, in the liability, it, it felt like he was the right person. I'm also in North Carolina, which where all of the damages part was going on. So that seemed to be a, a pretty even way to divide it. And then one of the things that, that you know, we also learned is we're in Nash County. We're staying at Hampton Inn. They're staying at something at down. And, and the trial was on court TV. And what we did see was there were two Ford lawyers sitting at the table and two sitting behind the bar. Mm -hmm. But every morning, there would be two to three new lawyers who would come in who had motions in limine, some of which we had already argued back in January over two days, or new motions every day with memos because they were back at the uh, hotel mm -hmm. watching everything on court TV, drafting memos and motions, and then coming in. And we did this every morning. We had to do it. So it was just the two of us to be there doing it. And, and so we knew there were motions coming. We never knew what they were till that right. morning. Right. So one of us had to take them, and then and and it gave us each you know a little bit of a chance to get our bearings to get prepared for for our witnesses. Yeah, I've I've always felt like, especially with Ford, that they've got their trial team, and then they've got their night team. That uh, you know, one of them's they're they're just up up all night writing motions <laughs> so they can show up at the court you know the next day when and hand you you know four new motions that they've got that the judge has got to all of a sudden hear. That's the drill. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, um, I also wanted to talk to you about, um, you know, you know, Kent, you spent uh, um, 
a, some, a significant amount of time in the opening, uh, you know, talking about the concepts of crashworthiness and and uh, enhanced harm or an extra harm. And I, and sometimes I want, you know, I, I think those are uh, can be difficult concepts to explain to the jury. How do, uh, tell talk about how you approach those issues and making sure the jury understands, uh, you know, what the case is about. Uh, well, I hate to keep talking about focus groups. So we knew from the focus group that that it's a hard uh, concept for people to understand. And we had uh, Artemis Malikpour helping us uh, as a jury consultant. And so I worked long and hard with Artemis on those concepts. And actually, I thought that was done pretty well. We used examples and uh you know, emphasized that Ford was responsible for the extra harm, the enhanced injuries. I think the jury got that. Um, uh, not positive, but I don't. I don't know. I've I've looked at it a lot since then, and uh, I'm always open to new ideas. But I think I think that was done. Um, you know, pretty well in this case. It's. It, I saw one of your examples uh, where you were talking about enhanced injury. You know, had to do with fuel tanks and and uh, and fuel tanks being ruptured. And uh, you know, I remember from the Ford cases that we've tried that one of their standard motions in Lemony is always that you know we don't get to mention the Ford Pinto. And uh, and I was wondering if you picked that example just because it you know sort of gives you a throwback. Make sure people remember you know that these guys made the Pinto. <laughs> Anytime you got Ford in a case, <laughs> you always try like crazy to get the Pinto out of it. Right. <laughs> and you always try like crazy to get it in it. So I don't know if it makes any difference or not. <laughs> um, well, I mean, I, I, I always, you know, like to make the argument because if, if once they start getting into, well, it, you know, it, it complies with the FMBSS and that kind of stuff, I'm like, well, you know, judge, I get to tell them that, you know, so did the Ford Pinto. We get to talk about that, you know. Exactly uh, right. So uh, one one other thing I wanted to mention it was um, was there uh, you made a sort of a theme out of the fact that Ford's safety policy was to always advance the state of art whenever possible, um, and then I thought it just really uh, went nicely with the fact um, you know that they that they were putting three point belts in all these other vehicles chose not to put it in in the escort you know when it would only cost them nine to twelve dollars and that um and it sounds like the reason why they didn't do it one is it saves money but two is because since they were phasing it out they just didn't want to have to change the design of the escort at all because it take too much work yeah I'm, I'm convinced that's why they didn't put it in the escort uh, and you know you mentioned the theme of choices I think that's good in any product liability case because a manufacturer always has choices and a lot of times your client doesn't have any. In this case, Cheval, the car was full. I mean, he, he didn't have any place else to sit. All other seating positions were occupied. Um, so, you know, it is about choices that manufacturers make and your client usually has none. Yeah. Um, and I, I got to admit, it's been a long time since I've dealt with this issue, but there was a time in my career when I had to write a lot of briefs on this. But I, I seem to remember that when you have a, a lap belt type case that you always get into the the, uh, the Geyer versus American Honda case and preemption issues. They, they never tried to argue preemption or any any type of arguments like that. No, that that issue really is um, one that. Um, 
has been taken care of by some good court decisions. So I used to, you know, we used to have to jump through hoops and claim, you know, geometry. It right. was a geometry. It was always a geometry case. That's right. right. But, but now you don't, what you know more about the North Carolina law. You did all that briefing, but preemption was not a big issue in this case. No, it wasn't. Okay. Okay. Um, well, uh, I, I, you know, I, I always like to find out how is your client doing today? Is it, see, um, making good, uh, progress? Well, he, he still, uh, he still lives with his parents, but he graduated high school and, uh, and went to community college for two years and is working what he would like to do. Is, and he was a he is a really great kid and, and took things, you know, it, it, as well as you'd like to think you would if, it, you know, if you went through it, your child. But but he was he's very artistic. Right. And he's trying to do maybe write video games, short stories, oh, that's or great. doing uh, uh, cartoons for uh, uh, animations for short stories and kids' books. Cool. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask um, quickly, this is kind of going back a little bit, but we've mentioned focus groups and how, they, they, um, how they've helped y'all out in, in the past and on this case. And um, I'm wondering if you have, you know, there's lots of different ways to do them. And I'm wondering just as a general practice pointer for our listeners, if you can talk a little bit about, you know, if you've got a favorite way to do focus groups or things you're trying now that maybe you didn't try when you first started doing them. Well, well, probably the most. Yeah, go ahead. Well, now since the pandemic, we've started doing virtual focus groups, and I've done a couple, and they're not as good as in person, but they're pretty darn good. And so it depends on your case, depends on you know what type of focus group you want. But I think the key to me, the key is working with a really good jury consultant, um, and the preparation beforehand, whether it's an in person versus a virtual focus group, but having recently done two virtual focus groups, um, I'm satisfied with them. I think they're good. We're also doing jury jury surveys, uh, which is similar to internet research, but you can do it with, you know, several hundred jurors. The cost is fairly reasonable, and um, I I think it's all helpful. I've never done a focus group. I thought uh, you know it wasn't worth it, but Wait, how about you? No, no, I, I absolutely agree that it's worth it. It's just that, you know, you can't always do that, you know, that type of focus group. It, it can be it can be too expensive. Now, this case, we did too, and it was worth doing. But even with this, no one thought of hyperpigmentation, you know, <laughs> from, from the bruising of this belt. And then that's where it is. I mean, no one even thought of that as a possible defense. So uh, you, you still got to think about that, but probably the, the two most interesting ones I've done is one, just being in a restaurant and asking the manager, could I ask people some questions for 30 minutes and I'll pay mm-hmm. for their lunch. <laughs> and, and, uh, and, and it was really, it was in a small town in North Carolina. People loved it. And I was in there for an hour and a half and the manager loved it. And I just, they didn't know where I stood or how I stood. Now, I don't know if I if I should be uh, saying that because you you get that could have possibly been in the jury. People could have been in the jury pool later. I don't know, but 
I think it's a, I think it's a great idea. I mean, you know, I think talking to, you know, as many people as you can about how you're, you know, about your case and about, you know, the problems you have with it, it, it like, uh, like Kent said, it always helps. I've never found one that I, I didn't think helped me at all. I, what I was, was the other, what was the other one, Hoyt? Didn't you have, didn't yeah. you have one more? The other one that I've done that's been really successful is going to community colleges and talking to sociology professors and asking if I can take over their class for one class and ask them questions. They love it because they don't have to prepare or teach. Students love it. And again, it's just, it's really getting information to know what you should focus on. And you just find something that you didn't think of. Yeah, that's a great idea. Mm -hmm. I've I've never thought about that. And I haven't done, um, I I haven't done a a virtual focus group since the pandemic. uh, Although I've got a couple of cases that I've been thinking about doing it on, but you, you found those to be helpful, Kent? Yeah, they really are. And we didn't have any choice. Um, You know, we we had to do it that way, but uh, there's some really good options. Uh, It, you know, the first one was a learning experience. I think we did the second one a lot better. But uh, I think we'll, we're going to be doing a lot of them. Um, they're cost effective. Right. Um, and they're actually a lot easier to set up since there's no travel involved. So, right. Yeah. Because of the circumstances, we're going to be doing them. But even after we're not, you know, having to shelter in or um, uh, I think we'll be doing some just because of the convenience. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and so in the, the surveys you were talking about, Kent, that, is that basically where you're sending a questionnaire out and then just getting people to answer questions? Well, uh, no, there it's, it's verbal and it's, uh, by telephone and there's various ways there's internet, there's internet, uh, research can be done with a serve a questionnaire type with pres- presenting things. Uh, so I, I've done various types and there's pros and cons to both. Um, I do like having a sample size of several hundred people, though, yeah. on certain issues. And they have to be very <clears throat> issues. But most cases boil down to a few, you know, turning point issues. So those are helpful. Yeah, absolutely. I've got a couple of cases right now I'm thinking about doing that on. So, oh um, gosh, it always makes me think of the, the first focus group that I ever went to at our firm. And when it was over, the jury was like, yeah, plaintiffs all the way. And, and, and everybody that was more senior to me was like really bummed out. And I didn't, <laughs> I didn't understand why. And it was because we didn't really get to learn that much from it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, the, the hearing the ones on how you lose your case are, are uh, they can be a little disheartening, but they are much more effective because it really makes you think about your case. Um, well, listen, guys, this has been just fantastic. Is there anything that uh, that uh, we haven't talked about, about uh, the Cheval Bots uh, versus Ford Motor Company case um, that, that we haven't told the listeners about? Well, I want to put a plug in for my paralegal, Lori. Yeah. Uh, Lori uh, was really, she did everything for Hoyt and myself and was just uh, a trooper through the whole thing um, and didn't miss a beat, um, worked tirelessly. And so, you know, you're, you all know very well that your staff is critical. And so, um, you know, the staff Hoyt and I had there were, were great. And we couldn't have done it without them. 
No, that, I mean, and that that is such a, um, a a great point, and especially for young lawyers because they tend to sometimes uh, overlook paralegals or or uh, legal secretaries, and um, you know, and it, I mean, at trial, I mean, it, it, at all times, they're you know so incredibly uh, helpful, and and we've got a couple of just top-notch trial paralegals that. You know they they've got our exhibits ready. They know what we're going to ask. They you know they're they're handing us documents before we're even asking them for it because they know where we're going. Um, you know when you get uh, uh, someone like that who can help you in the courtroom, it is invaluable. Yeah, well, I, I, I'm sorry. No, 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 go ahead, Hoyt. No, I I, I will I'll second what Kent said because I got to work with Lori, and but one interesting thing I thought for our case and starting out was in picking the jury we had terrible weather and so we you're trying to get all these jurors in so it it took a long time and we got half court days and that sort of thing but uh, about halfway through the jury selection the Ford Council started making Batson challenges against us And, and in North Carolina we have pretty wide open jury selection rarely do you have a court reporter take everything down just because there's so much but Ford had asked for that, which you could see the court reporter and the judge roll their eyes when they wanted to have that. Well, then they they started making uh, she started making Batson challenges, and uh, and and I was picking the jury. I've done this so many times, and I so I'm interested to hear. And the challenge was that we were striking older white men, and. Uh, and I'd never actually thought of older white men being a suspect class. And, uh, but what became interesting about it was uh, she gave this several people that we had struck, and it was all for very good reasons. And the judge asked us, well, do you want to put anything on the record? And we said no. Well, then after three or four times, we just kind of felt like, well, maybe we should put something on the record. And, and it occurred to us that... Uh, and we asked the judge, how do you know the age and race of the jurors that have been struck? And the judge looked over at Ford's counsel and said, how do we know that? She said, well, I saw on the Higgins, on the record, how do we know their age and race? And there was nothing on the record for it. And then Ford asked the judge going forward to ask everyone to state their age and race but the three or four others that they had brought the challenge, there was no record of them. So. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that makes me think of one other thing I wanted to mention, you know, and, and we see it in cases, but um, I, I saw in your uh, closings that, it, and I saw, uh, read some of Ford's closing that they were, uh, they were uh, being pretty aggressive about attacking the two of you. Uh, and, um, you know, and, and it happens, uh, but I, I just would like to hear how you all address that at trial when, when they start making the attacks personal about the lawyers. Well, I think it's pretty common, uh, you know, and you have to have pretty thick skin. And I think it's a mistake to go back and be personal, uh, you know, any kind of personal attack on defense counsel. Uh, so I tend to know it's going to happen and be prepared to take the high road. I don't know if that's the right way to do it, but I don't see much advantage in returning fire to defense counsel 
if they want to get down in the gutter. So yeah. I, I that, that's just my two cents worth. Wait, you probably tried more. I know you've tried more cases than I have. How do you handle it? Well, I, I handle it the same way. I'm never going to get in the gutter with them. And I generally just come back and say, you hear lawyer jokes all the time. You hear about lawyers all the time. And one of the things that all lawyers see is if you got the law, you pound the law. If you got the facts, you pound the facts. If you got neither, you pound the table. Well, I'm the right. table. And that's all they got. And if that's where they got to go, then they don't have anything else. That's, that's right. That's, that's a yeah. That's a great way to deal with it. I like that. I like that a lot. Well, let me uh, let me thank you too. This has been just a great uh, great show. We've been talking to Kent Emerson and Hoyt Tesner. If you want to look up more on Kent, you can go to LangdonEmerson.com. That's L-A-N-G-D-O-N. E-M-I-S-O-N.com. And if you want to look up more on more on Hoyt Tesner, uh, go to farin.com. That's F-A-R-R-I-N.com. Uh, Ken Hoyt, thank you so much. This has been uh, just uh, a, a great interview. All right. Thanks, Steve. Thank you. It's an honor to play. Thank you. Thanks, guys. All right. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our greattrialspodcast.com, as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website. Yeah. So check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. Note if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. Right, exactly. <laughs> we only need a positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.